1: 106.5
2: FM Los Angeles. 102.3 FM Riverside.
0: And 1050 AM Palm Springs. Um, our guest is Frank C. Gerardot
4: Jr. Ger- Gerardo. He's <laughs> silent. It's a French. You know? right? It's like a Bardot, Bridget Bardot, or, or a fine Merlot.
0: Yeah, well, uh, yeah. And uh, so th- there we go. Um, thank Thanks you. Thanks for having for me. me on. Yeah. So listen, um, this book really took me by surprise. Very interesting. I, I actually didn't realize um, what the story was behind it, and um, I'm still sort of in shock. Because um, g- halfway through, I didn't even realize who was going to be the, uh, the um, arsonist. <laughs> wow.
4: <laughs> so, yeah. Good. Thank you. That, that's uh, Thanks. Good. I, I wrote it. That's what, what I exactly intended.
0: Yeah, and even then, I just started suspecting, you know what I mean? So, um, wow, I don't know what to say, you know, and I learned a lot, I, um, especially about my uh, uh, taco chips. I remember, uh, I'm going to keep them away from the flame.
4: Probably a good idea.
0: Yeah, I, I had no idea. Uh, what led you down this road? Like, why did you write about this story? How did you come across it? And, uh, and it must have made enough of an impression that you actually decided to write about it.
4: So it really, for me, it was almost two or three decades in the making. Um, I, I was a newspaper reporter for a long period of time in Los Angeles. And um, as such, I covered a lot of crimes and a lot of cop stuff. And one of the cases that I covered involved, um, involved a, a, an arson fire that took out several homes in Glendale, California. And um, the, the man that was investigating it was a firefighter by the name of John Orr. Later, maybe at less than a decade later, I was covering a, a courts in L.A. And one of the cases that I covered was a murder trial involving John Orr, these very same John Orr. Um, and I always thought, wow, this, would be, this is a really interesting topic. And, but I never really did anything with it. And, in fact, Joe Wambaugh um, wrote a book right after uh, this trial, um, kind of about this, this case, but not really in depth. So years went by. My publisher, Wild Blue Press, called me and said, hey, we've been talking to a woman whose dad was a fireman uh, in the 80s and 90s in L.A., And he was involved in a pre sensational uh, murder trial and were wondering if you'd uh, like to talk to her and possibly write a book. So I said, sure, what's her name? They told me, Lori Orr. I said, oh my gosh, uh, I know the whole story. So I hooked up with uh, Lori, who's now Lori Kovac, and uh, together we kind of pieced together the the story of this serial arsonist who was known as the Pillowcase Pyro um, and responsible for millions of dollars in arson fires and four deaths at least uh, in Los Angeles in 1984 so that's the premise of burned and of course that's why I wanted to write it because I had all this background with the, with the story
0: Wow now um, with with arsons like this uh, you know and and things that were going on like in the like you were talking about the Olies, um hardware store and stuff and when you went through um, this was a very new concept. I, I, don't, I don't want it to sound like it's something good, but this was a new idea. This type of arson, you know, where he would light small fires in other places to take away resources from his main target, like this yeah. case, the Oles. Um, well So, so people, the, the cops were really not prepared for this, or they didn't really understand that type of method. That this was kind of the first, wasn't it?
4: So, yes, the the pillowcase pyro, one of his signatures, not only the device that he used to set his fires, but the fact that he would often set diversionary fires. And in the case of Olley's Hardware Store in South Pasadena in October of 1984, a fire that not only destroyed this hardware store but killed four people, uh, what the arsonist did was set diversionary fires at nearby grocery stores. So when the fire department got the calls for these diversionary fires, they'd run out, they're out there putting out the fire, and meanwhile, this bigger blaze is just getting underway, and, and there's no resources to to come and attack it immediately. Um, it was uh, kind of a, a thing that you know gave the arsonist a lot more power over his victims because he was not only able to control you know their life and their response to the immediate situation, but he was also able to control the response of firefighters who were coming out to these these scenes.
0: What do you think the point was? Uh, oh, sorry, I, I was just gonna. With someone like this, who's planned this arson, so he's got it detailed where, you know, he can take away resources, go to his target, Oles, and um, burn it down. But he killed people in that. Not only did he uh, see, I'm trying to think that he enjoyed watching it burn, right?
4: Well, he got a sexual thrill from setting these fires, and and um, and you, it's something that you really can't discount. Uh, in fact, in his own words, he described the thrill that he got from not just setting the fires, but from watching them and then from watching the, the response to them and, of course, watching the destructions that they caused.
0: So the death didn't mean anything to him. He wasn't aiming to kill people, but if it happened, it happened. That Is that kind of... Help?
4: Exactly, yes. And, in fact, uh, you know, he felt that the people that died in these fires were just too stupid to get out of the way. He didn't really look at them as being you know, victims or, you know, humans or anything like that. He just saw them as being, you know, collateral damage.
3: Wow. So this was a, I don't want to say a simple case, but it was pyrophilia. Yes.
4: Yeah. He's a, I mean, he, you know, he exhibits all the signs that you'd expect in somebody who, you know, gets off from uh, setting fires.
1: Uh, Almost a sociopath.
4: Uh, Well, he's a complete sociopath. Absolutely. I mean, if you put a, if you, so, I mean, we might as well reveal for you, like, okay, so we're talking about an arsonist who's also a firefighter, and his name is John Orr, and Lori's his daughter. And before he became a fireman, uh, he wanted to be a cop. So uh, LAPD has very rigorous psychological examination that they give. Um, they, you know, gave him the exam, and he failed it. And, you know, he had all the indications on this MMPI. Uh, Of being a sociopath, and when you talk to him, as I have and did for the course of this book, uh, you you immediately find out that he's not only a sociopath but he's incredibly narcissistic. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's an extremely dangerous and volatile combination. um, You know that I think enable that you know, given his also the underlying psychology of his you know childhood and stuff. Uh, that gave him, you know, sort of the, uh, I guess, the foundation of somebody who would be a, you know, not not just a, an arsonist, but a serial arsonist, and not just a serial arsonist, but a murderer.
3: Right. Now, for the listeners, if they're not familiar with what an MMPI is, it's actually a psychoanalysis test or a personality inventory, and it exactly. cons- it consists of 994 questions. <laughs> yeah, and which, which you know, and then really they have a, 10 questions asked a million different ways. <laughs> yeah,
4: <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what it is. And, and all of us exhibit some signs of sociopathology or psychopathology or narcissism. It's just how severe it is and what the combinations are that cause you to be a bad person.
3: So, really, it's looking for certain traits, and then, if I remember right, kind of like out of your DSM, if you exhibit three out of these five, then this is your diagnosis.
4: Yes. Yeah, that's exactly right. And John, you know, John's diagnosis uh, when he took the MMPI for LAPD, Los Angeles Police Department, was that he was a sociopath and unfit to be a police officer. It didn't stop him from trying to get into law enforcement, though, because, you uh, He became a security guard at Sears and um, continued to seek out avenues where he could work for, you know, a government agency and ultimately ended up at the uh, Glendale Fire Department where he was not just a firefighter but an arson investigator. So he kind of had that cop, right? He kind of became a cop even if he was a fireman.
3: Right, and and they do, they they seem to seek out, you know, careers that, that give you importance, give you authority. You know, it, it's, it's like, what did we call it, the hero syndrome? Uh,
4: that was John to a T. He, um, he worked as a security guard at Sears and, you know, took great pleasure in not just, like, tracking down shoplifters, but, you know, getting them out in the parking lot, holding them at gunpoint, arresting them, you know, making a big deal about it, um, it because he wanted to be seen as the hero. And um, on occasions later when he was a fireman, and he'd be doing, you know, routine neighborhood surveys as such, uh, one, on one occasion in particular he ran into a couple of gang members who were tagging up an alleyway. And, you know, rather than call it into dispatch, he decided to take it on himself to not only, like, stop them from tagging the alleyway, but to chase them in a high-speed chase in his fire truck and them in, a you know, <laughs> an old car. <laughs> the streets of Glendale and into Burbank. And then when there was a wreck, at a, these guys went through a, a red light and they got in a wreck. When there's a wreck and he finally, like, you know, he's confronting them face to face, you know, he's like Barney Fife holding a gun at one of them and shaking, um, you know, unsure about what the next move to make is. And ultimately he's, you know, assisted by the Burbank Police Department and making the arrest. And the cops at the scene said, you know, that after they went through this whole process, that you know, John just stepped off to the side and threw up because that's how nervous he was. Um, it's uh, you, you know, you laugh about it. It's funny because you never think about a fireman making an arrest. And of course, his superiors were absolutely upset with him, furious really. Like, <laughs> what are you doing? What are you doing? You know, making an arrest. What are you doing? Chasing people in uh, a fire a... truck? In a fire truck? <laughs> in what a fire the... truck with lights and sirens going? It's the funniest what thing. What the to crap envision. are you thinking? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. It's, it's humorous.
3: But when there was an accident at that intersection, good thing there was a fire truck on hand, right? Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah,
4: <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So it, it's it's really, and the thing is, this is the kind of person that John was. And um, because he, even before any of this other stuff happened, people remembered him. You know, they remembered him as being this, you know, kind of an odd duck, right? You know, the, the imperious security guard, the, the overbearing firemen. Um, I mean, I heard so many stories. Uh, there was a story about a, a, a couple of young ladies. They were uh, sunbathing on a hot day um, in their backyard. And, uh, somehow John happened to notice them. And so his way of being able to get them to come out of the house was to actually light a fire on the hill behind their house and then um, go to the front door and tell them, Hey, I'm a fireman. There's a fire out back. you got to get out. Um, of course, rescuing them from the fire, right? Uh,
2: <laughs>
4: not uncommon. And he, but he would also like, he'd do the obverse too. So he'd drive down the street, he'd see, uh, say a guy's house that had too many weeds. So, you know, as being the, the inspector for the neighborhood, you want these people to cut down their weeds because in Southern California where you have this extreme fire danger, if the weeds are cut down, you know, the hillside's not going to catch on fire. So, um... He would go to the people's house and say, "Hey, you got to cut the weeds." And if they didn't cut the weeds, he'd come back back and light a fire in the front yard, and then you know cite them for uh, for having the weeds too long. Oh,
3: okay. uh, Yeah, but yeah, he, but, he, but let, let's put it all in perspective, though, Frank. Um, yeah. It, it kind of makes sense what you've told us thus far. You know, he was confronting people. You know, he confronted these gang members at gunpoint and found it a little distasteful, as evidenced by the fact that, you know, pardon the pun, but, you know, he vomited afterwards. So he moves to something that's a little more manageable, something that he's in control of,
4: but he can still get the thrill. Yep, and that is setting fires. And, um, you know, and developing a way to set fires so that not only just setting, see, setting the fire. We can all go into any place and set a fire, right? But the key is getting away. You have to be. If you set a fire in a grocery store or a hardware store or whatever, yeah, you could do it. You could walk in with a pack of matches or whatever. And back in the eighties, you could walk in with a lit cigarette and nobody would care. <laughs> but, right? You think about it. Right? It's how far? We, how much have things changed? But the, uh, but the thing is, is what he would do. Is he would set up a device where he, in fact, it involved a cigarette, where he could light it, set it down, and get a, be five minutes away from the scene of, the, of that point uh, before the fire actually flared up. And, um, of course, so it's really hard to, and this is pre, now you got to also remember this, this is before anybody had video cameras anywhere. So you could, you know, walk into a grocery store, walk into a 7-Eleven, walk into a hardware store, light a fire. And if you look like everybody else, and that was part of John's persona, he never really, his look was just average Joe. Uh, He, you know, he's able to do this and get away with it.
0: You know, but um, I was going to say, we all know people like this. Um, You know, kind of like the security guard cop wannabe and and very... um, I don't know, I don't really know what the term would be, but very uh, aggressive that way and wanting to be the hero. But you don't really, I don't really picture that type of person as one that would uh, burn down places.
4: Yeah, I mean, right, you you look at that person as being the sort of protector of of sanity or normality, right? But, uh, you know, John has, John, is not he's I think in his head like if he goes to somebody's house and, and sets a fire in the front of the house he's doing it to show them that they should have listened to his advice or if he goes into a hardware store and sets a fire he's doing it to like show the hardware store owner that they're you know they're keeping things in an unsafe way and that they're they're too flammable um, and it, so that he's taking that whole security guard mentality, one step farther, not only am I going to tell you what's wrong with what you do, I'm going to show you. Yeah. And, hey, and by the way, and if people die or if, you if know, it causes a million dollars of damage, oh, well, you should have done the right thing in the first place.
3: Wow, so he's setting up the cause and effect.
4: Yep, I really I really think that that's his mentality. It really struck me the other day. I was walking down the street, and I saw a car parked in front of a fire hydrant. And I thought, you know what? Oh, my. Why the hell would somebody park like that? Um, I'm sorry for using that. I know you're on the way. I apologize. <laughs> <laughs> um,
0: in LA won't mind.
4: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I, you know, I really thought that was lo- you know a lousy thing to do, and um, and and it occurred to me that you know, okay, well, what I, nothing I can do about it. But I could. then I was, as I walked a little bit farther, I was envisioning John setting the person's car on fire or lighting the building on a blaze to like call attention to this car, you know, finding some other way to call attention to this car parked in front of a fire hydrant, right? And um, and it really like is like I like I felt in that moment that I really I kind of understood him. Um, it, or at least like maybe what would cause him to act the way that he did. So, um, there you have it. For what it's worth.
0: Well, and 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 now Half the book, or even more, a lot of the book is written um, about his family, right? And 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 the effect and the kind of family home life he had, and it it, it didn't sound very um, very healthy, Um, you know, without putting blame on anybody. But there there was a lot of problems with his home life. I just, uh, so from, from, from his daughter's point of view, oh, me. And, 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 and even the wife and stuff, like, how, how did they handle it? Did they have any clue that this is what he was doing?
4: So I want you to remember that John was an arson investigator. And if you remember at the very beginning of this conversation, I told you that I was a reporter who, who had dealings with John. Well, most every reporter in L.A. had dealings with John. He was on TV all the time. He was always quoted in the newspaper. He was, you know, he was the go-to guy, right? Well, his family saw John as a hero. Here's here's Dad, you know, not only putting out fires, but finding the person that set him. And, oh, and look, there's a picture of him rescuing a puppy. And, you know, he was to them. And there is a picture of him, by the way, rescuing a puppy from a fire that he started. Um. Wow. Crazy, right? <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> they saw him as a hero. He's a hero, so um, you know they, they held him in this uh, in very high regard and um, had nothing but uh, you know positive thoughts about about him. Now, as now, remember uh, the book's co-written with his daughter. So his daughter, in the course of burn, you know, is is sort of like journaling her her life. And, um, they, she thought so much of her dad that even after he pled guilty to setting some arson fires, and even after he was convicted of murder, she was willing to testify in open court to prevent him from getting the death penalty because she believed that, you know, he was being railroaded, uh, like a Stephen Avery kind of character, um, and that, uh, you know, the justice system had done him wrong because he was such a good fireman and made the cops look bad so often. Um, The book, by the way, the reason that she's participated in in Burned uh, is because subsequent to her dad's conviction, you know, 25 years down the road, she now realizes that, yeah, he's a serial arsonist, he's a murderer, and he's a really bad guy. And the book chronicles... uh, you know, not just his fire setting and not just the evolution of her relationship with her dad, but but also John's sort of um, sexual promiscuity, uh, his uh, desire to control people in very, you know, what we would consider non-usual ways, um, his, his and his, you know, violence outside of just being a fireman. Do you, do
0: you think... Um He could um, do the same thing in today's time, like now. Like, would he get away with the same things that he did then?
4: So I've thought about that a lot, and I don't think that that you could get away with the things that he did now. And primarily because he lit a lot of fires in um, retail establishments, and one of the things that you see everywhere are cameras. So you couldn't. Everywhere you go, there's cameras now. So it would be very difficult to, you know, pull a John or and go into a grocery store and light the uh, potato chips on fire or go into a hardware store and light the bedding on fire because there's too, many, there's too many places where security can get a visual on you and get the not just you setting the fire but a picture of your face from a variety of different angles. Also, um, you know, the brush fire thing, you might be able to get away with that, but... Again, you know, people's homes have security cameras. There's security cameras at almost every intersection that you possibly could drive through. There's just there's way too much uh, opportunity to get caught um, now than there was then. And then I think thirdly, beyond that, the science of DNA, um, which didn't exist in the late 80s, um, or it did but it was nascent, um, you know, is so precise that if you were to let's say use a cigarette as a device in a fire the dna um could probably be extracted and you know you run one of those profiles like they did on the golden state killer and you know eventually you come back to john so i think it'd be very hard to get away with being john orr today
0: yeah, you, you also mentioned, I, I remember the fingerprint and, and how, how much uh, time it takes and how difficult it is to really get anything from that, from those days. Right, know. well,
4: that's, yeah, so in one of his fires there was actually a fingerprint left behind, a good liftable fingerprint, and um, his, the, a detective in Bakersfield found it, and he was convinced that it was a fireman that set this fire. But when he went to the ATF and said, hey, I'd like to run this fingerprint against, you know, known firemen um, who I think might be involved in this. They said no. And then, then you know, a couple years go by, and the ATF says, all right, go ahead and run this through our federal database. There's what? no hit. Why? Why, why the holdup? Yeah, you know, I mean, because nobody, nobody in the fire service, nobody who's a fireman, nobody who's in public service wants to believe that one of their own is – As bad as John was.
3: Well, that's true. That that's true. We we tend to circle the wagons around our own people, but at the end of the day, we are still people, right? You know, and we uh, we are the easiest because what's the first thing you do? I I work in law enforcement. What's the first thing they do when they hire you? Take your fingerprints. That's right. There's a reason for that because what changes in the academy? You don't become super.
1: Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
3: In the academy, they take those fingerprints to compare with your past because you may be some crook or you may be you, some you, criminal.
4: Exactly, and if and later on down the road, if you're at you know you come across a dead body and you pinch a wallet. Or you know, or open the safe or whatever. You you know, you're going to leave behind evidence, and um well, and and a, you know that's an unfair comparison because they're not <laughs> going to need that wallet.
0: <laughs> well, yeah, right, that's
3: yeah, wallet. exactly. Kevin's
0: yeah. lighting yeah. chips on fire anyway, so <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, but, I'm you sorry, know, we we're, but, we're just
3: joking.
4: Yeah, of course. I, I right, I'm I'm laughing too. Believe me, um, because you're right. They're dead. What are they gonna use it for? <laughs> they don't need it, um, but yeah. You, well, the thing, I can but the see- thing is, is back then. It's, but that, okay. But we're that's a cop thing, right? Yeah. Fire. Okay, we're talking about a fireman, and we're talking about people who you know are you know sworn to put out fires, not set them. So they really and the ATF, you know, alcohol, tobacco, and firearms really could not, you know. Th- there's no real profiling going on. They're just like, no, there's no firemen setting these fires. It's some wacky, uh, you know, revolutionary or nut job. Uh, who just happened to set a fire in a fabric store in Bakersfield.
0: Yeah. Well, and yeah. I, I, I remember the times. I mean, I'm old enough to know that uh, when I was growing up in the 70s and 80s, um, we, it just didn't, you had to respect your elders. It was different. Um it sounds corny, but there was a way different time, and uh, you just didn't expect firemen and policemen and all that to do wrong. Right. And, and there was a total different. I could imagine saying or something. Uh, I could even imagine swearing uh, in front of my father. Like you know what I mean? The times I couldn't imagine accusing a fireman or even saying that. Nowadays we almost expect it.
4: I it, it's uh, it's a one eighty. It absolutely is. And so, you know, this this decision not to look at firemen was, I think, directly because of that sort of mentality. Like, well, why would somebody in this position do that? There's, it doesn't make sense.
0: Yeah, he's a fireman. A good of man. Yeah,
3: but let's look at it, though. I mean, we're sitting here uh, making his case. That's the perfect cover. Nobody would believe that out of me. Look, I'm on your side. Back then, that was the perfect cover.
4: Yeah, and not only that, you know, um, he taught classes to arson investigators who revered his techniques. And, um, you know, and and even in these classes, he would say, you know, he would tell them, oh, you know, there's a serial arsonist out there who's doing this, 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 and this, basically pointing to his alter ego. um, To, you know... Further implant the sort of, you know, uh, what would you call it—the dissonance or the, you know, the separation, yeah, be, yeah, between him and uh, and the act and himself, and yeah, and that's a whole other part of his personality too. By the way, um, so you know, toward the end of his career, he wrote a book of fiction called Points of Origin, um, and in this book, there's uh, there's two main characters. Uh, one's a fireman who's a good guy, detective, arson investigator, and the other is a, a bad guy, a young fireman who, you know, lights fires and gets his, you know, gets sexual thrills from, uh, from doing so. And, uh, throughout the course of this book, the good fireman is, uh, you know, actively seeking this, this serial arsonist. Um, and there's, you know, an ultimate confrontation, uh, at the end of the book that's pretty interesting. And, I, you know, when you read the book and you know what John's about, you go, oh my God, okay, this guy is like, he sees himself as two, these two different people, right? He's telling us he's the hero, but he's really the anti-hero, and this is what's going on in his mind when he sets fires, when he, you know, uh, when he kills people, <laughs> when he, um, you know, is deceiving the system. It's really, uh, it's mind-blowing uh, to read once you know about him. And he also he wrote he actually wrote two books. So he wrote that book, Points of Origin, a work of fiction, and then he wrote a second book called Points of Truth, which is uh, what John calls a a book of nonfiction. And essentially, it's his defense against having been convicted of all these crimes. Right? He says, Hey, I couldn't have have set the oh yeah, I couldn't have set the Olives fire because of this, 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 and this. I I couldn't have set all these other fires because of this, 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 and this. So I told him I was in a conversation with. Him, I said, "Hey, John, look, I've read both your books. I've read your book. I've read, you know, Points of Origin, fiction. Points of Truth, nonfiction. But you know, in my, I believe that Points of Truth is fiction, <laughs> and Points of Origin is nonfiction. Oh man, I pissed him off. But, but I can imagine it, that that was his O.J. book. I didn't yeah, do it, but if I, I had, up, I would have done it this way, yeah, exactly. That's exactly what it was. He and he really tried to point the finger of blame at." Um, a kid who lived in Glendale who he'd arrested for arson more than once and um, it, it's really it's pathetic to read it's impo- first of all not just pathetic it's nearly impossible to read um, uh, well,
0: and so when you did he really think he didn't do it
4: no. He doesn't think he didn't do it, but he but he wants everybody else to think that he didn't do it, and he'll go to extreme lengths to get you to believe him. You know, um, when I told him that I was working on a book with his daughter and that his daughter believed that he was 100% guilty of killing people and setting fires, he told me, well, I'll work with you, but I want you to keep an open mind throughout the process because I think I can convince you that I didn't do any of this.
3: Mm-hmm. Oh. Well... You know, as as an investigator, though, you you know, let, let's talk some theory here. As an investigator, you could turn the tables on him and almost get him to confess by saying, "Listen, I don't think you're smart enough to have done all this."
4: Well, that see, you, I wish you had done the interviews with him because you're exactly right. Uh, that's the I think that's the way to to handle John. <clears throat> and I don't think anybody's ever approached him uh, within that in that way. Um, uh, not even me. But you're right. That's that's the way. That's probably the way he should be approached. The thing is, though, is that even with that, he's going to dissemble and lie and tell you he didn't do it. Um, he's too. You know, he's too. I wish I could like give you a better description of his personality. But there is there is this thirty thousand mile disconnect between reality and John's view of the world. And um, maybe maybe he doesn't believe that he did it, but he also knows that he did, so what he really is trying to do is to bring everybody up to his view from Mount Olympus um, as you know this dispassionate observer and Sherlock Holmesian uh, detective mm-hmm. uh, who's been you know railroaded by a society that uh, that just doesn't see things the way that he does. Yeah,
3: well, again, you know, from what you've told us, it's it's that incredible ego that that should be
4: his downfall. <laughs> his ego is enormous. Um, you know, I've interviewed a lot of guys in prison and talked to a lot of guys who committed a lot of like bad stuff, bad crimes. And uh, of all of them, this guy's ego is like through the roof, uh, just unreal. Uh, as far as, you know, what, how he sees himself and how he thinks that other people should see him. And, af- and, you know, to that end, after I wrote the book and sent him a copy of it, he wrote me a 22-page letter telling me every place that I was wrong, every place I was an idiot, every place I was an asshole to him, and every place that I didn't understand what, you know, what it was that really happened.
3: Uh, uh, and that, that fits uh, how many serial killers do we know of that have these enormous egos? I mean Al uh, how many interviews like this have we done that these enormous egos a book is written or an interview occurs and the killer It writes these <coughs> enormous Because the the writing has got to be as big as their ego 20 some odd pages Here's why you're such a screw-up and and here's why you're so wrong and just the amount the volume itself tells about their ego but
4: but yeah oh yeah and by the way this is single space uh <laughs> tiny lettering uh no indentation for paragraphs and uh, front and back of lined paper from top to bottom with just the last very last line being you know the sign off
3: so you were being conservative top and bottom that's 40 some odd pages but
4: yeah oh yeah i mean it's it, it, and it just goes on and on and on like into he could have written a third book out of this 40 pages probably which also tells me that he's scared yeah well, he, well you know what he's scared of i tell you he's he's it, and it's too late he's scared of losing his family and he already has and that's really it you know he's he's, he's in prison and nobody comes to visit him uh, to hear him tell it, he doesn't have any money, but I know he gets a state pension, which probably goes into a victim's fund somewhere. Uh, he, you know, I sent him twenty dollars to make a phone call, and uh, he didn't call. And I wrote him a letter, I said, "Hey, John, why didn't you call me?" Well, I used it for soap. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah okay. Sure. Sure, you did. Yeah. He
3: was buying coffee to keep himself safe. So- mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> wow. Uh, how did you feel um, after he wrote that letter? Were you, did it put you on notice? Were you kind of worried about him uh, coming at you for for that? Uh,
4: I mean, no, it, I don't. I, I don't feel like I, that it put me on notice. Uh, I just felt like you know he was telling me I'm not going to talk to you anymore. I'm not your friend. Uh, he, he's pretty notorious in L.A. for writing letters to people. Uh, he writes. Like I talked to an arson investigator with the sheriff's department, who said he gets letters from John all the time, and um, and then another guy I know, like a random, like just a random guy who went to high school with John, said he corresponded with him for a while, and then he told John, he said, you know, um, you're a fake. You set all these fires, and John sent him, you know, a similarly lengthy message and cut him off. So no, I don't worry about him. Yeah, I worry more about guys like you know, gang members and stuff. You know, like real gang members.
0: Yeah. Well, well, yeah, Yeah. they're
3: being chased down by firemen, for God's sake. Yeah, right. Yeah,
4: Yeah. I guess it proves they're not as tough as you you think they are, right? (laughs) Yeah.
0: Well, and also I I noticed in the book it's almost um, suggestive or or you slant it toward uh, a lot of other um, fire inspectors or other people around the time, Didn't really take him so serious.
4: That good observation. Um, Yeah. So the sheriff's department. So here's the thing: the Olis fire, right? It was investigated by the LA County Sheriff's Department, and within 24 hours of that fire uh, being set and burning down the building and killing those people, the sheriff's department decided that it was an accident. Well, that that really upset John. Because, you know, he wanted his handiwork to be acclaimed as being you know, the work of an arsonist. Um, the, but the, the guy that did the investigation with the sheriff's department, you know, he was, he's looking at, I don't want to spend all this money. on overtime, over time there's no way we're going to be able to dig through all this stuff. We've got to get these bodies out of here. I don't want this to be a months-long investigation. It's just easier to say that it's an accident. And then when he got, years later, when it became obvious, well, this wasn't an accident, this was an intentionally set arson fire that killed people, that investigator would not back off his initial assessment of the blaze. Uh, He ended up testifying for, uh, you know, being largely, his testimony was largely in favor of John at the criminal murder trial. Um, You know, but John, though, at the time gave his own testimony. When, When the Sheriff's Department, you know, decided, well, hey, this wasn't an arson fire. He went out and set a very similar blaze in an Oli's hardware store, not three miles away from the one that he burned to the ground. And that time the investigators came in and they said, you know what? This is an arson. Yeah. Just goes to show you.
0: Yeah. Uh, did, did he, uh, do you think from what you hear and what you have learned when you wrote the book, um, do you think he was Good at what he did as a fire investigator.
4: Yes, and by all accounts, John was a great fire investigator. Uh, if he went out on a fire that he didn't set, he
0: <laughs> could
4: pretty <laughs> he could pretty much tell you how you know how the fire began, where it began, what caused it, and um, you know he would be pretty good at tracking down the uh, the arsonist. But, uh, but, he, but the thing is, is that he would do the same thing in the fires that he did set. People that worked with him marveled at how they could say, hey, John, there's a big fire here. And he could you know, walk from the street to wherever the, you know, the fire took place and you know, within a matter of seconds find <coughs> the ignition device and explain how the fire happened.
0: Wow, so he he, it, so he was really good. What what was it that the people didn't really care for about him um, that he worked with?
4: Well, John was one of those guys that um, you probably worked with. One, he, if you ever watched The Office, he was a Dwight Schrute kind of character. Yeah, uh, you know, <laughs> always know knowing more than everybody else, and um, always following the rules and making sure that you did the same thing that he did. And yeah, people couldn't stand that about him. And the, the women in his office hated him because he was constantly hitting on him and harassing them, and, you know, trying to get them to go out with him. Uh, and, you know, it'd be, it was uncomfort- he was uncomfortable to work with uh, as a man and really uncomfortable to work with as a woman.
3: Wow.
4: Yeah. <laughs> he was a real weirdo.
3: Which yeah. means he can't run for
4: office at any point. Yeah. No, he won't be running for office anyway. <laughs> well,
0: that means nowadays he could. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So so
3: what, so what do you see in his future, Frank? I mean, what's, what's going to happen to him eventually?
4: He's going to die in prison. That's what's going to happen to him. He thinks that he's going to get out. Um, you know, California laws over the last several years have changed regarding, um, you know, prison sentencing and how long you can be in prison and um, what you can be in prison for. Um, I guess there's some possibility that John could qualify for parole, but he was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole, uh, as an alternate to having the death penalty. Um, and, you know, I mean, I don't think he's, you know, he's in his late sixties. Um, I just don't, I don't foresee any scenario in which, you know, John gets out. I actually think he likes being in prison. Oh, no. Yeah, I think he does. I think he...
3: You know, well, he, I, I I I would, I would disagree I would, simply on this. on
4: this.
3: I I think that he would love to get out. He would love to appeal this case, and he'd like to get out so that he can brag. See, see,
4: I beat the system. I'm so much more smarter than the system. Yeah, I, I didn't mean to say that. I, absolutely, and he has appealed uh, many times. But I think that I think that deep down, you know. Um, like way deep inside of him in some part of, you know, like the the smallest little part of his heart, like the Grinch. He likes, he, he likes being in prison.
0: Well, it, it might be a more controlled environment for him. Yeah. And his type of personality, he could be the, the head of the pack, and he's running his show. So um, that might be better than living in the open. Well,
4: that's true. I, the the, I, mar- I think the martyrdom. Yeah. Yep. You know, I, th- I really think that's what it is, and and it is the head of the pack thing. Like, you know, he ran a uh, a prison newspaper for a while. He, um, you know, he he writes. He can write as much as he wants to. Mm-hmm. Nobody's going to bother him. He can watch as much TV as he wants to watch. Um, you know, yeah. he's in a with twenty page rebuttals. <laughs> oh yeah, can you imagine that? It's. Where do, where do you even have the time? I don't even know how I had the time to write the damn book, let alone, you know, write it, read it, and then write a 20-page synopsis
0: of it. <laughs> yeah, I know that feeling.
4: Yeah.
3: <laughs> so. Well, what's coming up next for Frank? What are you doing up next?
4: Well, thanks for asking. Um, one of my previous books was written with uh, Ken Ural. He's a former New York police officer who is convicted of... Uh, being a really bad guy if you've seen the seven four uh, documentary on netflix he was one of the guys that was dealing cocaine while a member of the new york police department so uh... we wrote a book together it was called betrayal in blue and we're doing a part two to that where we look at some other incidents of officer misconduct and um, how departments sometimes look the other way even when their cops are being really bad mm touche. we actually had him on the show yeah, oh, you had Ken on the show. Well, the, yeah. well good. He probably talked about Trail in Blue, I'm sure. Yeah, that's what we yeah, talked absolutely. about. We talked about that was yeah.
0: one of our biggest shows last year. Um, and Burl Bear has been on a few times.
4: Yeah, yeah. so Burl, 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 Ken and I worked on that book. And then on part two, it's me and Ken. Wow. Small world. Wow. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I look forward to it.
4: Good. Yeah, I think you'll like it. We've, we've looked at some interesting cases. Uh, we've looked at uh, stuff in the LAPD, stuff in Miami, stuff in uh, Detroit and Cleveland. So we're giving like a more uh, national perspective, and we're interviewing a lot of the bad cops too.
0: Oh, there's lots of those.
4: Yeah. Oh man, <laughs> T- every day now. <laughs>
0: hey, and, and you know um, that we I still get um, oh I don't know a couple of dozen of uh, write ups about that uh, interview. People still. Say terrible things about him.
4: Oh yeah. Well, um, <coughs> his partner sure doesn't care for him. But no. but Ken has you know Ken has you know really I think turned his life around um, in a significant way. Certainly the most honest of the the group of the seven four that was involved in that stuff. And. Um, from the perspective of writing a book about bad cops, who better to have, you know, diagnosed what's wrong with a cop than a bad cop?
3: Yeah, and, and that's, that's true. I mean, uh, I, you know, I, I hate to say it, but that's absolutely true. I mean, who knows better? You know, much like, you know, we've been talking today about an arsonist who was an arson investigator, and they know how to get away with it because they know all the tricks of the trade, and they're the ones teaching it
4: so they know where the blind spots are. Yep, and they they can influence their students to maybe not look at them even. Go that far, right?
3: Misinformation. Yep.
4: Yep. But, but
3: Frank, it has been an absolutely fascinating show today. Um, I'd like to have you on again.
4: Well, thank you. I'd love to come on any time.
3: Our guest today, though, has been Frank Gerardo. And the book, again, Frank, go ahead.
4: The book is Burned. It's available at Wild Blue Press or on Amazon.com or in your neighborhood bookstore, Burned.
3: And it's an absolutely fascinating read. Al, would you agree?
0: Yes. (laughs) Uh, Fascinating listen.
3: (laughs) There you go. It's also available on audiobook. Cool. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thank you so much, and we'd like to have you back very, very soon.
4: All right, good. I look forward to it.